low-income families have less confidence in tap water and they use a lot of bottled water, for example. So basically, bottled water is like if you think of a gallon of bottled water compared to a gallon of tap water, bottled water is like a couple of hundred times more expensive, actually. So a lot of people move to bottled water, and this provides also an economic hardship to lower income people. So other than the health issues, it could be an economic hardship too. And also some people, since they're afraid of tap water, they may also move to drinking more soft drinks with sugary. So it may have caused or may cause some obesity issues. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. If you'd like to learn more about Infinite Earth Radio or the topics discussed on today's show, go to our website, infiniteearthradio.com, and you will find show notes for today's show and links to all our episodes. Okay, let's get to today's show. In light of the national attention on the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, we are doing a short series of podcasts looking at the water infrastructure and water quality issues facing communities across the country. Our topic today is holistic water infrastructure, and our guest is Dr. Tamin Jonas, founder and president of the Green Water Infrastructure Academy, a nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C. The mission of the academy is to enhance human health and quality of life in global urban environments by promoting green water infrastructure, research, education, and outreach programs. The Academy promotes a paradigm shift towards a holistic approach for sustainable management of water resources in global urban environments. Dr. Jonas, welcome. Well, thanks for inviting me, and it sounds exciting. Our first question is, with the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, gathering a lot of media coverage and outrage, But yet we know the situation in Flint is not that rare in the U.S. In fact, there are 13 other cities in Michigan with higher lead levels in their water. Can you share your sense of the scope of the problem? How many Americans lack access to safe drinking water? Well, uh, I have to give you some background information first, because we have public water systems, like the one in Flint, Michigan, and then we have private water systems. And the public water systems serve about 86% of population which is about 260 million people in the United States. And the remaining is served by private water system, which is about 45 million people. So first of all, the public water systems, such as the one in Flint, are regulated by the US EPA. So they are supposed to measure 94 plus water quality parameters when it leaves the treatment plant. But the thing with public water systems is it really depends on the size. Some of these are really huge, like serves hundreds of thousands of people in metropolitan areas. And some of them are really small, 
The smallest could serve like 25 people or 15 connections. So the majority of these systems are uh, about 97% are small water systems, which serve 10,000 people or less. So when these systems are getting smaller, so the, the financial resources and technical and managerial skills are, are not there. So the EPA requires monitoring of these water parameters, which leaves the facility. But a lot of very small facilities are unable to do this. And sometimes the problems are discovered much later. So I would say that the, there are, of course, with these small water systems, we could have a lot of other problems which are unknown. And for certain, there are pockets of lead contamination water across the United States which are not covered or not found. A few days ago, after I talked to you, there was an article in newspaper that Ithaca, New York, and schools, they found higher levels of lead in the school water. So... The thing is, the water is tested at the time which is leaving the water treatment facility. And it travels through the pipelines, which sometimes are corroded and sometimes are falling apart to the households and other facilities. So the tap water is not that tested that often because utilities reporting to the EPA the water which leaves the utility. And the tap water is not tested that often. And if it's tested, then we find lead problem or other problems, you know. So, so it's not a surprise and people should not be surprised if this triggers more testing of water across the country, we find more problems actually. So what I hear you saying is that the, at the moment, the kind of the scale of the problem is somewhat unknowable because the water delivered at the house isn't being tested. Not regularly, yeah. Yeah, or people, they test their waters. And a lot of people, of course, have this perception that tap water is not safe. They use filters and they use bottled waters. Uh, so that's another issue. But the scale is a problem. If we think about Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, which serves a lot of people, these waters are really tested a lot. Right. But if, if you think if a community which serves several hundred people or something, Basically, they don't have the resources to test the water because water monitoring and testing is expensive. If you want to find out what's in the water, that's really expensive. So they cannot do it as regularly as a large system is doing it. And also, I have to mention about the private water supplies. About 45 million people depend on well water. And these are not regulated by U.S. EPA. And some households and businesses who depend on water, well, they test their water, but it's not tested that regularly, you know. And a lot of these systems, private water wells, they use groundwater. So it's assumed that the groundwater is cleaner than the surface water, which is not always true. And these waters usually disinfected, so we don't see bacterial contamination. But other possibilities are there for other types of pollution that could be in groundwater. And there's not much data actually to know. And I was looking at this in, in 2008, there were about 19.5 million cases of waterborne diseases reported in the United States, 19.5 million. And about 76% of these cases attributed to the private water wells. So it means the remaining, which is 24%, can be attributed to the public water supplies, which are mostly small systems. And I have experience with very small systems like trailer park in these places that have really had problems with testing the water. They don't have basically this person, you know, to take the samples and take it to a lab and labs are expensive and that sort of thing. So we could say that the water is not as safe, unfortunately. I mean, it's safe comparing to a lot of countries. In terms of bacterial contamination, maybe a lot of water is safe, but in terms of 
contents which may cause chronic disease. So we don't know much. There could be a lot of things in the water that we don't know about, you know. And uh, So based on what we do now, is this kind of lack of proper water, wastewater infrastructure, is it disproportionately located? Are certain geographic areas more likely, are certain populations more likely to be impacted? Well, as I say, smaller systems serve smaller communities, and these are supported by towns and water rates. We pay for our water, and sometimes we don't have enough resource to do that. Of course, in the low-income communities and very small communities, the problems will be much more water content problems than the larger cities. And with larger cities, maybe I should mention one other problem. Although we have large systems, which are water are treated properly and is tested very regularly. But as I said earlier, it's, it's transported via pipelines. In a lot of older cities, these pipelines are falling apart because of the lifespan. And they're corroded, there are breakups and that sort of thing. And there's a possibility of contamination by bacteria and corrosion material or things which happen, some like flame, the chemicals react with the pipe material and the contaminants show in the drinking water, you know. So we could have that type of problems even with larger systems because the pipeline infrastructure has become unreliable in many cities. Right. So older urban areas and rural areas, less populated areas, they're, they're more yes. likely to have issues. So can you share with our audience, what are some of the implications of the lack of access to clean water and wastewater facilities? What kind of implications does this have on families and communities? First of all, health issues. And one a problem like Flint is highlighted. So it creates also a psychological issue. And a lot of people, even before that, they are using because they don't have... Actually, yesterday, the day before yesterday, maybe you did read it too. I, I read, I think uh, it was a survey which showed minorities and low-income families have less confidence in tap water. And they use a lot of bottled water, for example. So basically, bottled water is like if you think of a gallon of bottled water compared to a gallon of tap water... Bottled water is like a couple of hundred times more expensive, actually. So a lot of people move to bottled water, and this provides also an economic hardship to lower-income people. So other than the health issues, it could be an economic hardship too. And also some people, since they're afraid of tap water, they may also move to drinking more soft drinks with sugary. So it may have caused or may cause some obesity issues in these places, you know, because they, you drink more Coca-Cola rather than you drink water, you know, because you, right. you think water is not safe. So that's another problem. And what are some of the more common health issues that we see related to lower quality drinking water? Well, bacterial contamination is the first problem. You know, you get sick, so we call this acute problem. And if you get sick, so probably the cause is uh, discovered soon. But other things like the lead in water, we don't know until like the blood is tested for lead, for example. You know, so there could be other sources of contamination we don't know. We there's one area we call it emerging contaminants. And nowadays, pharmaceuticals are discovered in, in source water and drinking water. For example, Prozac, and some people drain these things into the faucet and it goes to the river or source water. It's not detected and it's coming back to the water system, to drinking water, because drinking water treatment systems are designed for the known contaminants. If we don't know about known contaminants, we call it emerging. Once it's discovered, then maybe they upgrade 
the system, you know, and that's also like costing money to do these things, you know. So hormones or antibiotics and these things are discovered in waters nowadays, which could be a source of concern for a lot of people, even in larger system. So the chronic diseases, we really don't know much until like type of pesticides, other things which might be in the water. Like in groundwater, a lot of groundwaters, especially in the Midwest areas, shallow groundwaters are contaminated by pesticides and that sort of thing, you know. And uh, these things don't show as a taste and other in water, you know, but it's kind of cumulative and the impacts are known later once somebody tests the water, okay, uh, we got this problem here, you know. So it's really complicated and complex, as I think, you know. So, Dr. Jonas, you are the president and founder of an entity called the Green Water Infrastructure Academy. Can you tell us what the academy has been doing to address this problem? Yeah, we established the academy last fall. And basically, we are looking or focusing on water sustainability in urban areas. And urban areas in the United States use more than 80% of the water comparing to rural areas. So, or 80% of population which use like drinking water in urban areas. Let's put it that way. So if there are any more problems are in that sense in, in urban areas. And so there are, before I talk about the academy, I want to like, give you an indication what type of problems there are. One is water scarcity or availability because of increased population and higher demand. And the other problem is high potable or drinking water use generates high wastewater, amount of wastewater, which should be treated and disposed of. This goes to the rivers and lakes. According to the regulation, they are treated, but they're still they have con- it's not like treated the same level as drinking water, but they have contaminants in it. The third one is we always talk about drinking water and wastewater, but our major problem in urban areas is stormwater runoff from impervious areas, parking lots, roads, and rooftops. And when they run off, they pick up a lot of contaminants, bacteria, metals, oils, all sorts of things from paved areas. And Mostly, these waters, runoff water goes to the rivers and lakes, so it contaminates the lakes and rivers. And then those are also the source of drinking water, so it will cost us more to know what is there and, and treat the water. So in my thinking, in the urban water infrastructure has got three legs. One is potable water or drinking water system, the other wastewater system. And then the third one is a stormwater runoff that all these three infrastructures kind of designed and planned in separate tracks, not holistically designed. They are connected, but we deal with them as separately. And then the other problem with high water consumption in urban areas, energy consumption, about 4% of the total energy use in the United States, which is a lot, is attributed to municipal water and wastewater supplies treatment and distribution and discharge. And in terms of drinking water system, mainly water delivery, which is via pipes and storage tanks, these are pressurized. They use a lot of energy. For Blacksburg, Virginia, which is a small town, we use about two-thirds of energy for bringing the water from the New River to Blacksburg and the university, which is Virginia Tech here, and about one-third of energy we use for water treatment, which is still as a conventional sand filtration. If we use high-technology, maybe membrane technology, it actually will cost more energy. That's why, like, salt water costs you more 
energy to treat. So energy consumption is a major issue. And also, as I said, the pipelines infrastructure are falling apart in a lot of urban areas. And we repair and replenish of these costs millions and billions of dollars. And in our case, we think the stormwater runoff and wastewater, which is leaving the wastewater treatment facility, we call these wasted waters. And these wasted waters should be a part of design and planning of stormwater management in the urban areas, which include all those infrastructure. So the Green Water Infrastructure Academy aims for a holistic approach for water management in urban areas, which promotes the recovery and use of wasted waters, which is a stormwater and wastewater, for various indoor and outdoor uses, including using it for urban agriculture entities for food production. So that's our aim, the first aim. The second aim of our academy is to integrate or bring in renewable energy, clean energy like solar energy for water treatment and delivery in urban areas. And we are suggesting more decentralized systems comparing to centralized systems, which now serves urban population. And these decentralized systems will be then use a lot of stormwater runoff from rooftops and other areas. And we use a lot of recycled wastewater. In the future, use a lot of renewable energy to treat and deliver the water. So that's the goal. So we are promoting research and education and outreach on decentralized green water infrastructure and also through workshops and conferences and presentations and talks like this, we hope to influence the policy and water in urban areas to improve the systems. So, Dr. Jonas, you've talked about an integrated and holistic approach to drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater management and the application of green infrastructure into that conversation. And that's certainly something that our colleagues and we work on a lot. But at the national level, it's been hard to get a broader consciousness of the kinds of investments that are needed. What do you Mm -hmm. think are the obstacles to addressing this problem and what's needed to fix it? Is there a national, a state, a local, a regional approach? Well, first of all, I should say it like politics, water problems are local. Well, energy problems are local too. If a small community has got water problems, unless it's highlighted like Flint, it never becomes a national problem. But having said that, there are about three obstacles that I see. One is the lack of knowledge and experience related to decentralized and holistic approach at the local and state level governmental levels, and also the people who plan and design these things. So that's the number one abstract. Number two is our college-level water management curricula is mostly based on traditional or conventional systems, which were very, very effective 100 or 80 years ago. And it's very slow moving to decentralized or new technologies. That's number two. And then number three, in the national level, local level, state level, there's lack of policy incentives to plan and implement decentralized green water infrastructure. So if our arguments are convincing, because in a lot of places, basically, we cannot do things if there's no good policy. You know? So I'm envisioning a triangle, which on the top we have management, and the bottom policy and technology. And technology is always evolving. New technologies are coming up. So in the management has to incorporate these new technologies. But these cannot be done until their policies which 
promotes these new technologies and management of the water, you know. So they're interactive. So I see a triangle which arrows going both ways, you know. So it's a dynamic system that we have to deal with. Policy is really important. It impacts management and the decision makers say at the state level, really, they cannot do much. They might become aware of technologies, but if the policy is not there, so they cannot do much. So we should have a some sort of program to kind of educate, influence the policymakers and decision makers to move toward that direction. So how can people learn more and support the work you do at the Greenwater Infrastructure Academy? We have a website, which is gwiaacademy.org. And whoever is interested, maybe you should go to the website because we have our mission that you had you mentioned earlier and the goals and the way the people or organization could support the research and education so or one of us maybe could give talks whenever i give a talk so i introduce the academy nowadays but the website is probably the easiest way it's www.gwiacademy.org academy is uh, gwi it stands for green water infrastructure and academy is fully spelled okay great and can so Share with us, on a personal level, what motivates you to do this work, and why is this work important to you? Well, I've worked on uh, water environment issues for about over 30 years now, so I've been always interested in the issue. And as I've been working in the area, so I kind of see the big picture what are the, like I, I told you about the tree infrastructure, you know, so that's a big picture, you know. And so always I try to come up with out-of-box solutions to the problems. So personally, I want to make really a small contribution to addressing like a very complex and huge problem which facing the U.S. cities and also other cities in this century. So it's kind of a, a personal mission to do this, but maybe even taking smaller steps and talking about these things maybe will help to move it to the right direction. Dr. Jonas, are you surprised to find issues of poor and lacking water infrastructure in the United States as frequent as they pop up? Are you surprised by that in a no. country as developed as the U.S.? No, I, I'm not surprised, actually, because, uh, first of all, the U.S. is a very huge country. And except for two states, I've been to all about 48 states. And we have a lot of small communities in, in the United States and a lot of low-income communities, small water systems. So it's not a surprise. And also, one thing I've noticed, a lot of people try to distinguish between developing countries and developed countries, you know, but our problems are common if you think that way. And the other day I was reading that space technologies are doing very good in water treatment, you know, like... This astronaut stayed for one year in the space, you know, you just cannot carry water all the time. So water recycling and treatment is a major space technology in the future. So these will be transferred to small communities, hopefully and economically, you know. And I was reading that some of these technologies are going to be implemented in, in some developing country in Africa or someplace. But why not in the United States, you know, and Bill Gates is promoting you no know, flushing toilets in some other country. But these things, these technologies are really useful in the United States too. So we should not distinguish between developing countries and, and, and developed countries. I think when the technologies are available, we should try to use them in the United States as well and address our problems in this country. 
Excellent point. So the next three questions we have, we call them lightning round questions. They're very quick questions. We want very quick answers. The first thing that pops into your head. And the first one is, if you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable and more equitable communities, what would it be? Well, as I said, within our region, within uh, there could be uh, low income and high income people. And right now we have a flat water rate or payment system for everybody. I think it should be scaled. People who use more water above a certain level, they should pay more on the system. So that extra money could go to support the lower income communities. And I give you an example, like in Northern Virginia and some places like that, we use per household 500 gallons of water per day, you know, which is a lot. What the people do, they use the treated drinking water for washing the cars, irrigating their lawns and that sort of thing. They don't have to do that, you know. And the other people who use only a few gallons of water per day just for drinking and showering and that sort of thing, and they pay the same rate. So if you waste water, you should pay more for it. If a scaling payment system comes into existence, maybe it is somewhere already, I don't know. But that would be a good thing to happen if there's one thing. Okay. And so what one action could our listeners, the average listener, somebody who's not a policy person or an engineer, what one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? Well, first of all, water and energy conservation is very important. So we should educate people or people educate themselves to save water, not waste water in the schools and households and businesses and also energy. So I think if people can do anything, it's a very limited thing because even with conservation, we always need water. So we have to reclaim the water things. But water conservation, energy conservation, should everybody should be able to do that. And finally, if you're successful in the work you're doing, what does water infrastructure look like in the U.S. and around the world 30 years from now? Yeah, that's a very good question. So this is my dream. Not a drop of water will be wasted in urban areas. Everything will be used and reused. Number two, renewable energy such as solar energy and other types of energy, clean energy will be used for water treatment and delivery in urban areas. And number three, Enough food should be produced in urban areas, especially inner cities, using recovered wasted water, which is stormwater and recycled wastewater and renewable energy. For Because food is imported to our communities. Water is imported right now. Energy is imported right now to each community. So we want to reduce or eliminate importing these essentials to communities and the communities should become more sustainable in 35 years, hopefully. Thank you, Dr. Jonas. Thank you so much for the work that you do. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio.